beloved? And since you won't come to me, I'm coming to you. The back row is always the most popular seat. No matter where I go in the world, it's... Here's a little fuzzy. I don't think it's from the mic. It's something else. No matter where I go in the world, the back row is the most popular for whatever reason. So... Well, I would uh, first like to thank you for praying for me. Uh, right now, actually, there's people all over the world praying for us because every time I go somewhere, I send out um, an email to about 300 people in Africa, in Europe, in uh, Russia, all over Asia. Of course, United States and Mexico and Latin America and Cuba. And, and so they are praying for us. And that's the one thing that I desire more than anything else, that as I get to travel around the world, that you would pray for me. More, most important thing you can do for me. Okay, And just um, about a week and a half ago, we returned from Cambodia and where we treated over 1,400 people and six and a half clinics over seven days, and hundreds came to Christ, and, and we got to pull a bunch of teeth, and that was fun. And um, so we'll be going back again the end of December. I'll be going back the 1st of December to train some pastors how to study the Bible. And uh, there's been a breakthrough there. It's been very difficult. The pastors have of the mindset, it's all about money. And through prayer and, and continual uh, teaching of the Word, the Lord's breaking through that with some of them. So I would ask that you would just continue to pray. And that's really something that, that has um, come upon many, much of the church in the world, a worldly mindset. The pastor's have the mindset that the people are there to serve them. And that's so unbiblical. Jesus came to serve us, not us to serve him, though we have the privilege and honor to serve him, for sure. And so just keep that in prayer as well as, as um, I'll be going to Africa the 1st of January as well. Uh, the Lord has done some wonderful things there, uh, just touching the hearts of many of the pastors in Uganda. And uh, they've never been taught how to study the Bible. They've never been taught the Bible. And uh, actually, the uh, qualifications for a young man to be a pastor is if, they, if he can sing the loudest and jump the highest. That's no joke, seriously. And they're very much into the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine. And... And so it's been a real joy as I've been going there and, and teaching them how to study the Bible and also their responsibility to the Lord first and then to the people. Uh, there's been such a move of God upon many of the pastor's hearts of repentance and godly sorrow and, and having taken the word and misused it and, and used it for their own gain. And as they've been taught the word, they see their sin and they've confessed their sin and repented. And, and so I have a, a dear brother who is, I've trained and actually still training 
And he's going around teaching now, uh, pastors, and uh, just the level one inductive Bible study method. How many of you have taken that before, the inductive Bible study method? And that's what we teach them. And, uh, you know, that's that the Word of God and that simple method in the Holy Spirit is really all they need. And, uh, and they're just doing a phenomenal job with that. And so many other places that the Lord's uh, blessed me in going. I'm not going to bore you with that. Um, I'd much rather get into the word with you. Okay? So let's pray. Huh? Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Your word that is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide the soul and the spirit and the bone and the marrow. It's a judge and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. Lord, it causes us to be open, naked, and bare before you of whom we have to do with. And I pray that as you admonish over and over again through your word, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning. Father, that you'd silence all the distractions from without, from within. Lord, that you would cut away, Lord, the callousness, any callousness that exists within our heart that would resist what you would say to us today. Father, that you would give us a mind that would be able to comprehend that which is incomprehensible to the natural man. That you would give us eyes to behold the wonderful truths of your word. And Father, with all of that, that you'd give us hearts that would receive, gladly receive, and gladly obey all that you reveal to us. And so, Lord, breathe through your word upon our hearts and our minds. And may everything that is said and done be to your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a number of months ago, the Lord gave me a word. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but the word was awaken or wake up. Now, some of you hear that every morning, you younger people by your parents. Wake up, it's time to go to school, right? Or... Or a spouse that says, wake up, it's time to go to work, and, and such, or an alarm clock does that job. Um, but as I began to look into the scriptures, I, I realized that though it was spoken by the Lord in various times to his people over the years, it's a word that is needed for the church today. Absolutely convinced of that. And so that's what I'm going to bring to you this morning. And I also, as I was getting into the scriptures and looking at what God's word had to say about that, wake up, awaken, I realized that it was not to the unbeliever, but to the believer. Because you see, the unbeliever, as the Bible says, the unbeliever is dead in sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 Paul, writing to the believers at the church of Ephesus, says, he says, and you who were once dead in sins and trespasses. Even though we're born and we're alive physically, we're dead spiritually because of the sin nature that, that has been passed on to us over the ages from Adam and Eve. And so, though we're alive physically, we're dead spiritually. 
And so this call of God to awaken, to wake up, is not to the lost, because you can't wake up someone that's dead, right? You can only wake up someone that is alive. And then again, also in Colossians chapter 2, in verse um, 13, whoa, verse 13, it says this, And you, this is Paul writing to the Colossian believers, the church, he says, and you, being dead in your sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together or made alive in him. And so the the scriptures very clearly state that before we come to Christ, we're dead spiritually. And so again, this call to wake up, this call to awaken is to God's people those who are called by his name. And we're going to look at a few scriptures. I would encourage you to write them down because we're just going to look at that one particular scripture, each one in in a different section of the Bible, and then we're going to come back to it. But it would be good for you to read it again later. Um, Let's begin with Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Romans 13. And I'll take you in order through the New Testament, so it'll be a little bit easier for you. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Paul says this, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And so here, obviously, he's saying It's time to wake up. And who's he writing to? He's not writing to the unsaved. He's writing to the believers at Rome. And he's saying, it's high time. It's about time that you wake up. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn there with me if you would. Verse 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Paul says, Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now we're going to look at two more scriptures, but before we do, I want you to understand there's great implication here. Whenever God says awake or to wake up, what is implied? One of two things. Either we're sleeping or we have the potential to fall asleep. Okay? The same thing when in, in just the previous verse, you're still in 1 Corinthians, right? Chapter 15, look at verse 33. He says what? Be not deceived. Well, what is the implication there? The implication is that there is the possibility that I can be deceived. It, it, does, it doesn't mean that I am deceived, but the implication, what's being implied, is that I have the potential to be deceived, right? So whenever God says, don't be deceived, it's implied that I can be deceived. Whenever God says, wake up, what is the implication? I can slumber. I can fall asleep spiritually speaking. He's not talking about in the physical realm. And then go also to Ephesians chapter 5. This seems like a common 
occurrence, doesn't it? This is the third time now in just three letters that, that Paul would write. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, Wherefore he saith, and what he's doing is he's taking, reaching back into the Old Testament from Isaiah, because again, God spoke through the prophets to his people of that day for them to wake up also. And so this isn't a New Testament problem. This is a problem in the Old Testament days as well. And so he's quoting here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. So here again, he's writing to the believers at Ephesus. Wake up. Be alert. Be awake. And then finally, turn in your Bibles, just a few books to the right, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 6. Well, let's begin in verse 5. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not the children of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, because of that, let us not, what? Sleep. Don't be asleep. You're children of the light. You're not children of the darkness. You're children of the light. And as a result of that, because of that, don't fall asleep. And he, again, he's not talking about the physical realm. He's talking about the spiritual realm. And so he's calling us as God's word is alive and it's active. It speaks to us today just like it did 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. It continues to speak to us right where we're at. And as we get closer and closer to the Lord's return, the spiritual slumber is going to increase dramatically. And we're going to see that this morning. And I pray that God will use this to waken you up, to shake you up, to alert you, to get out of that place of indifference, complacency, uh, wanting to be comfortable and such, and, uh, and stir your heart to be about his business in these days. Well, Jesus told many parables, actually 39 in number in total in the four Gospels. And it's interesting that one-fourth of those, nine out of 39 of the parables that Jesus spoke, had to do with waking up to the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25. You remember, they were all waiting for the Lord. And the announcement came, he's here. And what were they doing? They were all sleeping, right? You can read it later. But for time's sake, I'm just going to cite to you the scripture, Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 11. And, or 1 through 13, actually. And they needed to be ready to be watching, but they're was that tendency in this parable as well as in the Christian life to slumber, to sleep, to become slothful, to become lazy spiritually. And there's great danger in that. And so nine of the 39 parables that Jesus told 
used to teach forth truth had to do specifically with this warning of being ready. And you know, it's not just nine, but there's a number of other ones, more than nine, that intimate the need to be ready, to be watching. It's interesting that he would spend that much time, devote that much time talking to his disciples and to the multitude of people, warning them. Why would he do that? If there wasn't the propensity Propensity is greater than tendency. The probability of his followers just kind of just kind of falling asleep spiritually. Do you ever find, and just, just to make this so obviously clear, when do you get tired the most? When you get on your face before the Lord to pray? Don't pray, don't save your prayer time until you're ready to go to bed. I mean, that's a good way to go to sleep. But if you dedicate that time only to your prayer time, your prayer time's going to be maybe a minute long. Same thing with the Word of God. Anything that has to do with spiritual things, the things of God, the Word of God and prayer, you can be sure that your flesh is going to resist it every step of the way. And that should be a clue to us why Jesus said to the multitude on a number of occasions, whosoever will come after me, whosoever will be my disciple, let him do what? Deny self, take up the cross. Denying self is one thing, taking up the cross is a huge step beyond it. Because you see, the cross speaks of death. Death to self. Not to allow self to rule and dictate your life. Die to that. Say no to that. And that's the only way that you can live for Christ, is when the flesh is being put to death. You cannot serve the flesh and and the Lord at the same time. It's not possible. And so... These parables, the laborers in the vineyard, the talents, the rich fool, the faithful and the evil servant, the unjust steward, the absent landowner, these are apart from those nine that I mentioned. These all also intimate the need to be awake and the danger of being slothful. Turn in your Bibles with me now, if you would, to Luke chapter 17. Because it's important to understand that the vast majority of these parables that have been referred to had to do with the Lord's return. Him warning his disciples. And I hope you consider yourself a disciple today. I know the term Christian is popular, but listen, gang, the term Christian is only used three times in the Bible. It's not until the book of Acts where it says, and the, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. What does that tell you? What should it tell you? It should tell you that the term Christian and the term disciple are to be synonymous 
as far as the Bible is concerned. Even though the term Christian is only used three times, the term disciple is used 238 times. And Jesus made it very clear the demands of a disciple. And I hope that you understand that God has not called you to be a Christian. He's called you to be a disciple. Someone who recognizes that your life is not your own. You've been bought and paid for, and therefore you're not your own. And what have you been bought and paid for with? You've been bought and paid for not with gold and silver and precious jewels, but by the precious blood of Jesus. And therefore you are to be recklessly abandoned to Christ, seeking not your will to be done any longer, but his will to be done. For you to be filled with the Spirit and say, Lord, here's my life. You take it and use it. You do with it whatever you desire. For you are worthy of all that I am and all that I want to be. You counted him worthy enough to be worthy of your sin, right? You didn't have any problem dumping your sin on him. Wasn't he worthy of your life? Isn't he worthy of your, your present and your future? you absolutely should say, yes, he is. Without question, he's worthy. And so in Matthew chapter 17, here Jesus is speaking with his disciples, specifically in verses 20 through the end of the chapter. And what he's talking to them in this chapter, as well as Luke chapter 21, Matthew 24, is about his return in Mark 13. And I want to draw your attention to just two verses. Verse 26 and verse 27. Again, what's the occasion? He's talking to his disciples about the signs that would precede his return and the wrath of God being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. Okay, so in verse 26 and 27, we read this. And as it was in the days of Noe, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, well, the question would be to us as Bible students would be what? Well, what was it like in the days of Noe or Noah? What was it like? Well, he's going to tell us. He says in verse 27, they, meaning the people of Noah's day, they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day of Noe entering into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now don't misunderstand. He's not saying it was wrong for them to eat and drink and to marry. I mean, God gave the people to do that. But this is the point. And that is that this, for 120 years, Noah was preaching to the people through two methods. Number one, his mouth. Number two, by building this huge ship on dry land. And both of them spoke of the impending wrath of God coming upon a God-rejecting world. Noah, for 120 years, preached, repent, because the wrath of God is coming. 
and he backed up his preaching with his actions. Gang, that's so important. Take note of that. Don't just talk to talk. You need to walk the walk. Do you really believe Jesus is coming back soon? Do you really believe the scriptures? Before you say yes, you need to examine your life. This is how you're living your daily life back up that which you say you believe? Or are you living for the world? You might say with your mouth, oh yes, Jesus is coming back, but how are you living? How are you spending your time? How are you spending your energies? How are you spending, yes, even your money? What are you doing with your life? Are you living as if Jesus, you really believe that Jesus could come back before this service is over? And I think probably some of you are hoping and praying, Lord, I pray it does because I'm really tired of listening to this guy already. And that's, that's fine because I hope he comes back before I'm done also. I don't have any argument whatsoever with that. But are you living like that? You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, because it's not just common in America, Talk is cheap. You ever heard that phrase? Have you ever talked cheap talk? Have you ever heard cheap talk? Well, unfortunately, to my own shame, I must say that I've done both. I've both talked cheap talk, and I've also heard plenty of cheap talk. And it very simply, cheap talk is that of saying one thing and living another way. Life not backing up what you say you believe. And so, this is the point. Noah was doing this. Noah was faithfully warning the people of the world of God's impending judgment. And how did the people respond? Just like life was going to carry on the same as it did the day before. Interesting. Here was Noah, preaching and building. And let me just say this. I find it frightening. I find it appalling. I find it so many things that are not in the positive nature. The lack of teaching of the return of Christ in the church today. It's almost non-existent. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, the teaching of prophecy was so prevalent in the church. But you know why it's not, doesn't have that spotlight today? Because it doesn't fit the message of the modern church. The message of the modern church is it's all about you, your best life now, and you being happy. And you see, prophecy speaks of not just Jesus' return, but what's going to precede Jesus' return. Well, read the book of Revelation. The wrath of God is going to be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. And so that doesn't fit. And one of the greatest tragedies of all of that is what? People are sound asleep spiritually. They are totally focused on themselves and what they can get out of this life. And therefore, their concern for their neighbor or others is very minimal. 
In fact, so much of the church has bought into the lie that all roads lead to heaven. Well, they don't. They all lead to the throne of God to be judged, but they don't lead to heaven. Jesus said there's only one way in which a man, a woman, a child shall be saved. And he said this of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. Jesus said to a very religious man in John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say unto you that unless a man be born again, he will never see the kingdom of God. That's John 3, 3. You see, Jesus is very exclusive, and the world and the modern church's message doesn't like that. They don't like his exclusiveness, that there is only one way. It doesn't matter how sincere you are, that will not get you to heaven. There's not many more than a, there's not many that are of a greater sincerity than the radical Muslim today. Very sincere. Willing to blow himself up along with others. That's very sincere. But you know, sincerity won't get you to heaven. You must be born again. The Jehovah Witnesses, many of them are very sincere. They spend their Saturdays and Sundays going door to door. But that's not going to get them to heaven. And so Noah's message was that of telling the people they need to repent and trust the Lord. And how did the people respond to that? Well, we already saw they just carried on with life as if it was nothing was going to happen. They ignored him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. Until the day that God, God, closed the door. And the rain began to descend. The, the water beneath began to break up and come and fill the earth. And ironically, I, I, I just thought of this this morning, how ironic it was that, that the longer that God extended mercy and patience, what is mercy? God not giving to us what we deserve. Patience, the patience of the Lord. As, as he continued to extend that during the time of Noah, what happened? Well, just read Genesis chapter 6. God looked upon the face of the earth and he saw that men's hearts were continually without skipping a beat, set upon evil. They just got worse and worse. Because, you see, it's the same mindset today. Because God doesn't act immediately be, uh, upon your sin. What's the thinking many times? Well, either God didn't see it, or he doesn't care, and that just goes further down to the point where God must accept it. No, he doesn't. God is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish. But there is coming a day when God is going to say, no more. That's it. And so the people ignored, even though God was ever so patient. And Jesus warned us about this in the last days. Well, what about today? That was Noah's day. Building the ark, preaching. Do we have any arks being built today, so to say? Well, not arks. But do we have any big signs 
from the scriptures that God's judgment is coming, that Jesus is coming back again? Well, yes, so many. I don't have much time this morning to go over a lot of them, but let me just give you a few. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 21, you're there in 17, go to 21 of, of Luke. <clears throat> this also is Jesus talking to his disciples concerning the last days. In verse 7, we read that the disciples said, well, when are these things going to happen? What kind of signs will there be? And Jesus says in verse 8, take heed to yourselves that you be not what? Deceived. Oh, there is such a great deception that is coming upon well, not the world. The world's already deceived. But upon the church. We read in Paul's letters to both Timothy and to the Thessalonians that there is going to be a day in which many will turn away from the faith. What does that imply? Well, they were once turned to it. He's talking about the last days. There is such a departure from the faith today in the church, in what is known as the church. The word of God has become obsolete. The word of God has taken a lesser place of importance. Nearly 30 years ago now, one of the first seeker-friendly churches in the Chicago area in the United States, Bill Hybels was the pastor and it was called, I think it still is, called Willow Creek. And Time Magazine came and attended a service. And then they interviewed him afterwards. And this is what they asked him. We recognize during the service that there's no cross. Not that you need a cross. And nobody has a Bible. Why is that? You know what his response was? Well, we don't want to offend anybody. You see, the word of God by its very nature is offensive. The cross, the Bible says, is a stumbling block. To us that are saved, oh, it's glorious. But to those that are not saved, it's foolishness. And Paul said, we preach the cross, the, the cross of Christ Jesus and him crucified. And you see, that has progressed, or I should say digressed, to such a degree to where people spend little to no time whatsoever in the Word anymore. And I know why, but I'm not going to get into that at this moment. So, that's one of the signs, and he will repeat this a number of times, and many will be deceived. That's one of the most prominent signs of the last days. And then in verses 34 through 36, same chapter, chapter 21, and take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with the cares and worries of this world and drunkenness, so that that day, what day? The return of the Lord, come upon you unaware. For as a snare shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore. That word watch can and very easily be translated, stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Don't get caught up in what? 
What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? All the things that the Gentiles worry themselves about. And listen, dear ones, you know why you don't have to worry about any of that? Because Jesus said, I'll take care of all that you need. Have you found that to be true, Chris? Yes. David said in Psalm 37, he said, I was young and now I'm old and I've never yet one time seen any of God's children forsaken nor begging bread. And he's not going to start with you. He's promised to take care of all of your needs to free you up from those things that commonly grip your heart and your mind so that you can serve him with reckless abandonment. So that you can be his and his alone. <clears throat> just two other ones because of time you don't need to turn there but you can write it down Ezekiel 38 and 39 where almost well over 2,000 years ago now about 2,600 years ago Ezekiel prophesied of many nations gathering around Israel to attack them and you know what they're right there Russia is in Syria. Iran, which is Persia, is in Syria. I've been to Israel. I go there two or three times, sometimes four times a year. And I've been there watching the bombs fly from one place to another and blowing up and killing people. And do you know that if I just walked couple hundred meters I'd be in Syria that's how close Syria is to Israel and it says in the Bible that they're going to come from the north and they're going to attack and here the stage is set you see this stage up here before the worship team came up to lead us in worship this morning they set up their microphones they set up their music stands they tuned their guitars everything was set so that when they came upon the stage and said let's worship the lord everything was ready well listen dear ones everything is ready the stage is set and the question that you need to ask yourself where are you what are you doing are you slumbering are you being slothful are you asleep do you recognize that the stage is set for the Lord's return? What are you doing? And one final thing, and I think this is one of the most prominent ones. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, turn there with me if you would. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3. You see, these are, these are the boards in the ark that is being built for us to tell us that the impending judgment, the impending wrath of God is right on the threshold of the door. Just as it was when Noah was building the ark and preaching to the people. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Know this also that in the last days... What days is he talking about? Last days, right? What's the last days? The days before Christ returns, before the wrath of God is poured out upon the world. And how does he begin to describe it? 
he says, perilous or extremely dangerous times will come. And listen to this, dear ones. He's going to give a big list. But you must make note of what's number one on the list. Look at verse 2. This is so significant. And men shall be lovers of their own selves. This self-love has been from the garden to the present, but in the last days it will become so prevalent. All over the world as I travel, this self-esteem, love yourself, put yourself first, is taught everywhere. It's taught in places that you wouldn't think it was taught. I've been to Cuba over 50 times, communist Cuba. And you know it's taught there? How ironic. It teaches the people to love themselves when the communist government says you're nobody, you're just, <laughs> just is ludicrous. And yet, you know, when people reject God, all reasoning goes out the window. All thinking disappears. And men will be lovers of their own selves. And if it were only true in the world, it would be sad. But this loving of self has flooded the church. We ask the world what the world wants in a church. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? Well, what would you like to have in the church today? Or Paul going from place to place and sending out questionnaires to the worshipers of Baal, to the worshipers of Molech, to the worshipers of all the different kinds of God. What would you like to see in the church here in Ephesus? It's not about you, gang. It's never about you. It's about Jesus. Jesus doesn't exist for your happiness. You exist for his glory. Now, as you surrender your life without condition to Jesus, you'll know happiness. But that is not to be the draw. And yet, that's what it is today. Jesus has become nothing more than a lucky charm, a genie in a bottle, for us to use him for my purpose and my plans. And that is not the Jesus of the Bible, by any means. But you see, it all focuses upon self. We have a man-centered message. I, I don't even want to call it a gospel because gospel means good news and being man-centered is anything but good news. And so these are some of the many signs. And let me just give you, used by way of analogy, the things in the physical realm that cause slothfulness, laziness. Well, Slothfulness, laziness, lethargy can be caused by certain foods, foods that you eat, by inactivity, by laziness, by the state of mind, by lack of physical exercise, by medications. Um, when I was heavily involved in the martial arts and, and competing a lot, um, and, and in college learning about in physiology, physiology, whatever class, I learned about lactic acid, a buildup of lactic acid in your body. And that's when that gets burned off in your system, that's when we call you get your second wind. Well, those things can cause lethargy. Well, in the spiritual realm, very similar, using that as an analogy, 
If you're eating the wrong stuff, the things of the world, you're going to be tend to fall asleep spiritually. You're not going to be awake. You're not going to be alert. Your state of mind. What is your mind? Where is your mind? Where is your heart today? Is it upon the things of Christ? Or is it upon the things of this earth? That will determine your degree of either slothfulness or attentiveness. Are you physically exercising? Not physically, but spiritually. Are you exercising your faith? Are you witnessing to people? Are you praying for people? If you're not, that's going to lead to lethargy. It's going to lead to slothfulness. Well, how is the church to respond? Well, let's look back at the verses we began with. Go back to Romans chapter 13 with me, if you would, please. Romans chapter 13. And let's look again at verse 11. And that knowing that the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore do what? Cast off the works of darkness. You can't live in the dark and in the light at the simultaneously. God's called you to come out of the dark into the light and to live in the light, to walk in the light. Quit filling your life with things of the world because that only hinders. It only is going to put you into a stupor state, if you would. He goes on to say, not only to cast off the works of darkness, but put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy, but be or but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make, what does it say? No provision for the flesh. What are you watching? What are you listening to? What garbage do you watch on the internet? What movies do you fill your heart and your mind with? What video games do you spend hours? You're sound asleep. Be not deceived, the Bible says. Bad company corrupts good morals. You fill your life, you fill your heart, you fill your mind with the things of the world. That makes you so deadened to the things of God. You can't serve God in the world. You've not been saved to serve the world. Paul would say to, I can't remember who it was, he said, in that you once served with such zealousness the things of this world in the flesh, the things that you're now ashamed of, serve the Lord. Give yourself without reservation, without condition to Christ. And serve him with everything that you have. We, I'm sorry, we're out of time. But I would encourage you to look at the context of the other three verses that I gave you. 
And they say pretty much the same thing. But you see, the church, you and me, this is how we need to respond. And we'll close with this. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. And let's look at verse 10. Well, let's go back to verse 9. Oh, even verse 8 is good too, but let's, we're, we're just going to do verse 9, okay? Well, no, let's go to 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. What's implied? We can be ignorant, right? That one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, what day is that? The return of Christ, right? The day of the Lord, what does he say? It will come. Not it might come, it may come, it will come. And then how does he describe how it's going to come? He says, as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. Why do you want to spend your time and effort on things that are going to be burned up, gang? Don't waste your time. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not upon earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Set your heart upon heaven. And then he says this. Listen carefully. May God just burn this on your heart. Verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. And he asks the question. What manner of persons ought you to be? This is how it is. This is how it's going to be. And it's you're, you're standing at the threshold. If you really believe what God's word says, the big question is, well, how should you be living? What are you doing with your life? Life as usual? Oh, he's not coming back for a while. Really? Well, he may not. You know what? I will, I will concede to that. He may not come back for another 50 years. But let me have you consider something else. When are you going to die? You might die today. And what have you done with your life up to this point? Because you will stand before Jesus Christ one day. And you will give an account for what you've done with this life. And that should cause you to tremble. That should cause you to shudder. It does me. I've known the Lord for almost 40 years, and I've been a pastor for 37, and I don't look forward to that day. Because I know that there's been things that I've done right, but I've done with the wrong motive. And all that's going to come to light. What are you doing with your life? Are you living your life in such a way that you really believe that Jesus is coming back, and you don't know when? You know, the thief that breaks into the house, he doesn't... I'll be there next Tuesday at 12 o'clock, okay? I'm announcing my coming. Just have, make sure you have everything ready so when I break into your house, I, there's everything's ready for me to steal. Quite, They don't do that, do they? They come unannounced. And that's the example. That's the illustration Jesus is giving. Let's finish reading, and then we'll just finish. And so... <clears throat>
what manner of persons ought you to be in holy living and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? That is a question. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. You can't look for it if you're sleeping. You need to be awake, wide awake. Wherein dwelleth righteousness, verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistle, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable wrestle as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware, watch out. He's given us warning. Beware lest you also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfast. You fall asleep. You become slothful. Watch out. Be careful. And then finally, verse 18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. Amen. That's God's solution for us. Wake up first and then fill your life with Christ. Obey him implicitly. Just as with Noah, there was a price for his obedience. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says, But Noah believed God, moved with fear, built the ark. He believed that God was going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. Do you fear the Lord? Do you believe that God's going to do exactly what he says he's going to do? I hope so. So much more I'd love to talk to you about. But we've come to the end. We have the privilege and the honor this morning to partake of communion. But before we do that, and if the worship team would come up, I believe you're going to lead us in a few songs of worship. I just want to admonish you. Before you come up and partake or lay hold of the bread and the cup, or even maybe you hold on to it, take it back to your, your seat, before you partake of it, make sure you're right with the Lord. Paul gives very stern warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Don't partake of the, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, in an unworthy manner. And you know, rather than not partake of it, get right with the Lord. David says, oh, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. You come here this morning angry, you come here this morning bent out of shape, whatever it is unforgiveness, bitterness. You know, rather than not partake of the Lord's Supper and become guilty of His blood and His body, take a moment and say, Oh God, forgive me. Cleanse me. Renew me. God delights in the forgiveness of sins. 
He wants your relationship with him restored. Now, that's not true for everybody, I'm sure. I mean, your relationship with the Lord today may not have ever been better before. Wonderful, praise God. And you don't have anything. You've already confessed your sin. You've already been made right with God. Praise God, that's wonderful. But for those of you that where that's not true, take the time to say, God, cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Forgive me. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll do that. And then come and partake of the bread and the cup. But when you do come up, go back, sit down, hold on to it, and then we'll partake of it together. Okay? The New Kingston Trio is going to lead us in some more worship. <laughs>